0: world of Work podcast with james and jane
1: hi everyone just before we get cracking into this week's episode i wanted to jump on and mention our new support page so as some of you may know we're on a bit of a mission to increase accessibility to good quality management and career training Um, and if you'd like to support us in this you can go to www.worldofwork.io forward slash support to learn more
0: Hi, everybody. Um, Welcome back to another episode of a World of Work podcast. It's James here. And James. And today we're going to be chatting about organizational change. Um, This is kind of interesting for us. This is actually the first time that we've recorded remotely. So uh, I'm in the US at the minute and James back in Edinburgh. So we're just going to wing it and see how it goes. But it's quite exciting.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty confident. I know who's got the best part of this deal, given I am... uh... Just recovering from being drenched through in a rainstorm. And apparently it's 21 degrees
0: out there. Yeah, pretty soon, yeah, it's pretty good. So yeah, so it's uh it's been really nice, and it makes a great change to get some daylight as well. I mean, what are the chances of that? I'd almost forgotten what daylight was like. Well,
1: do you know what it is? We're recording this at 4 p.m. and it is dark outside.
0: Yeah, and it's 11 o'clock in the morning here on the east coast and pretty bright and nice. So happy day.
1: Well international yeah, anyway. travel, man. Okay, so um uh, are you going to just run us through
0: the running order? Yeah, so so what we're going to do today is we're going to do the usual thing, um, focusing on organisational change. We're going to start off with a bit of a dive into some definition discussions, as we usually do, Then we'll do a research roundup. We're going to look there at a little bit around what makes up organisational change, some frameworks of organisational change, talk through some models of how to deliver organisational change. Um, then we're going to jump into a list of a week. The list of a week is things that you should think about at the start of a large organisational change programme. So just make sure you've got these under control. Then we'll have some stories from a keyboard, a few final thoughts and tips, and then we'll check out. Um, and as ever, you can get in touch with us at thewowpodcast.org or you can tweet us.
1: At the Wow Podcast.
0: Yeah. So, um, so we're all pretty much good to go. Do you want to kick us off, Jane, maybe with some sure. definitions? Sure. So we
1: always, um, we always start try and start off with... Uh, a few pieces of terminology or definitions that allow us to give some context around some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Um, and, uh, I've got a few for you here that I think are relevant. I know a couple of them, um, are able to give people a bit of an understanding of what we mean when we, cause we're quite specific, right? When we're talking about organizational change, for example. Um, so, uh, this one's from the Cambridge dictionary, which I quite like. I always quite like the Cambridge dictionary they seem to have things that um I feel quite comfortable with um and organizational change they talk about a pro it's really interesting what they call it a process in which a large company or organization changes its working methods or aims for example in order to develop and deal with new situations or markets
0: I quite like that one it's good well, so, you know we're talking about new markets I kind of like that. I. I, I the idea of sort of responding to something that's changing out there as
1: you know i quite like the cambridge dictionary i quite often from there little bit of a problem with this one for two reasons one what so anything except large organizations don't go through organizational change i'm not sure about that absolutely at all yeah um and then the other thing is i just think their examples are a bit rubbish so in this modern world organizational the idea that organizational change comes mostly from things like new situations or new markets um i think is quite limiting i think um quite often change can be driven inside from uh existing situations but an ambition to do things differently or better and i think that that pursuit to constantly look for better ways of doing things that you already do is is prevalent now in a way that maybe isn't it. anyway So that's that's organizational change. I I struggled to find better ones, actually, interestingly. Um, So uh, talking about change itself in the business dictionary, the process this one, God love the business dictionary for being specific. The process of causing a function, practice or thing to become different somehow compared to what it is at present or what it was in the past. And then the context is companies can undergo changes in a specific division, such as a marketing division or as a whole. I don't really understand that context bit at the end, because obviously you can have small changes or big changes. Yeah. But um, it, the, the, I, lo- I kind of like this because it's really clear. It's a process. The first thing is it's a process changing, which I think is really important. Um, and it's about something should be different at the end of it. I too, All too often I hear talking about change and it's, people aren't clear about what's going to be different at the end of it. They're, they're going through a process because they've either been told to or because they need to save money. And the only difference they can talk about is, well, we will have spent less money. Okay, that's great. But what actually is going to be different? Yeah, How is the to be different? And I think that question helps you with a lot of the stuff you're going to cover later. Yeah. Um, and then the other one I picked out. Um, so uh, one of your suggestions was to look at, um, Culture, culture change, or cultural change.
0: Yeah,
1: um, which I think was really interesting because I've picked one that's not business relevant. Okay, cool. Um, modification of a society through innovation, invention, discovery, or contact with other societies. Right. That's deep. And I recognise this is not. If you're if you're listening and you're thinking, how does that relate to me as a business? Like you may not see it straight away, but for me, this absolutely nails what. Um, what culture change actually is not the process of doing it or anything like that but what it is it is the modification of a society and if you think of a society as um, a group of people who behave in a certain way in a certain set of situations um, it's this idea you have to change that so culture change people should be different at the end of it now they might be different because they've got different resources or they've got a different uh, set of tasks but ideally they are different um, and ultimately I, it, it, it really hits the, to the base of what I think about organizations, which is they're just a bunch of people. I think we talk about organizations as if they are this other thing. And I don't think it's helped by the fact that legal have made it that. So organizations aren't people, are they? But ultimately they are, they're just groups of people behaving in a certain way. So, um, cultural change is about changing the way those people interact, behave and, and usually it's in response to a stimulus. And I like that the fact that they've got much more, a much wider set of stimuli. So they've got innovation, invention, discovery, and contact with other societies. And I think that's really crucial. Organizations sometimes quite often change in response to working with or in competition to other organizations. Um, and I think that's really interesting because culture, culture's catching, right? In organizational change. You see one organization go through a massive piece of organizational change around, I don't know, um, the fact that they've decided their marketing function is going to sit within the product teams versus a department all on its own because it needs to be entrenched, right? And then one, one organization does it in a sector, and then suddenly every organization in the sector has decided it's the way to do it. It's catching.
0: Yeah. Um, and What I really like in that definition is the phrase discovery. You know, you spoke a little bit earlier about external stimulus for change, yeah. about organizational change, but discovery opens up the opportunity to discover stuff about yourself, about your own organization.
1: And for What's product your... organizations, invention, right? Yeah.
0: It's so your for those
1: That aren't in the services industry where you're actually, you know, you, you should be investing in R&D yeah. and how are you, you know, looking at what new things you can bring to the market. And that absolutely is not in response to change. It's about driving your own destiny, effectively. Yeah. And so those are yeah. my definitions that i picked up.
0: Coming from a sort of semi-services industry and in, in financial services, so there's a lot of investment in product design and new ways of doing things in all those spaces as well. So I think it's, in you know, about discovery thing, I think it's applicable across industries. So I think that's excellent.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's definitely, unfortunately, I've had a slight blank on where I got it from.
0: Um, It's good though. But
1: I will... I will dig it out. Oh, no, I do. It's Miriam webster
0: uh, Miriam Merriam-Webster. Great. Okay, cool. Well, well, we'll share it online anyway at some point. So if people yeah. want to check it out, they can go and look at it there and it'll be referenced. So that's a little bit of a dive into some definitions. So we've talked a little bit about change, a little bit about organizational change, a little bit about culture and how that's relevant. And what I was going to do now with our research roundup is to talk a little bit more about what makes up organizational change. Um share some frameworks that people use for thinking about organizational change and then share some well-known models that are in existence that propose ways to deliver organizational change so this is kind of step guides to delivering organizational change but let's start off by having a little bit of a look in more detail at what makes up organizational change so when we think about organizational change it's really quite holistic it's changing you know not just the sub part of an organization but really almost the whole organization at once. And there are different bits that make up organizations when you think about organizational change. So the types of things that you change include things like policy, that include things like changing your processes, that include things like changing your ways of working, things like changing your strategy, potentially introducing new systems, things like changing your footprint and your geographical location, Um, and things like changing your organizational structure. Those are all factors of organizational change. they're kind of um, non-peoply. They affect people, but they're separate from people in some sense, conceptually. And then the other large part of organizational change that you have is people themselves. So, you know, people, as um, as Jane said earlier, are really the building blocks of organizations. Organizations are just a collection of people in many ways. So when you think about people change, you've actually got a range of things within that as well. So you've got individual psychological change. then which is a field in itself, and you've got behavioral change, which is a field in itself as well, and you've got culture change, which Jane mentioned. So when you think about organizational change overall, you've got the more static and structural and theoretical things like policy or systems or organizational hierarchies, and then you have the people that need to live in there um, you know, with their own psychological frameworks, with their own behaviors and ways of doing things, and with the, the culture that they've embedded, which is the way things are done around here. So if you're looking at organizational change, you're really looking at a combination of those more static items and the more people related ones. Um, And sort of my contention, my view on this is that in many ways, the static things are pretty easy to change. If you want to change an organizational structure, you get your bits of paper, you draw who reports to who you draw some dotted lines to make it a little bit more complicated and you change it into something new. And that's your structure change, right? That's fine. That's a piece of organizational change, but to make it work, you need the people to respond to that change well, to understand it and to help embed it. Likewise, if you're introducing new systems, you need people to learn the new systems and want to use them and so on. So organizational change really is that amalgam of um, harder things um, in terms of structural things and then softer things in terms of the people side of things. Um, So when we think about frameworks that exist for this, there are two commonly thought of frameworks that people use to conceptualize Uh, The factors that need to be thought about when you're thinking about organisational change. Um, These are the McKinsey 7S model, which is really one of the big famous ones. And one that's a bit less well known, which is called the Burke-Litwin model. And I'm just going to spend a minute on these. I'm not going to spend too much time on them. um, And we're not going to delve any more into specific aspects of individual change. So things like individual psychology, behaviour change, culture change. We're not going to cover in this uh, episode, but we might return to them. In another episode, the rest of the episode is really going to focus on overall organizational change. So these frameworks, then, we've got two that I touched about, touched on. We've got the McKinsey and we've got the Burke Litwin one. Um, I'm going to start with Burke Litwin because it's more complicated, and again, we're not going to do too much on it. I just want to give you a flavour of of what it is. So the Burke Litwin model is a model that pulls together a series of factors. Um, that people think of as important for organisational change. And it shows a series of relationship between the factors. So what it's trying to say is that each factor affects some other factors within an organisation. It's effectively calling out that an organisation is a system of different factors. And the factors in the Burke-Litwin model start with external factors and then kind of work through the organisational hierarchy, until they end up with some outputs. So what I'll do is I'll run through some of those factors and give you a bit of a flavour of what's in there. So Berkeley-Litwin starts with external factors. And these are things like, you know, regulatory environments, culture, technology, and things like that. And and the model says that that often some of these factors are drivers for organisational change. And and those external factors influence your organisation. And the level after external factors in Berkeley-Litwin is called strategic factors. And here, they talk about your strategy and your mission, your leadership and your organisational culture. And your external factors have a big play on your leadership, your strategy and your organisational culture. So that's kind of a first level of relationships. Then the next layer within Berkeley-Win is what they call operating factors. And here they talk about your organisational structure. They talk about your management practices. And they talk about your systems, which include your policy and procedures. And what they're saying here is actually, Things like your leadership, your strategy, and your culture, in turn affect your internal structure, your management practices, and your systems. So, you know, back to the high level, external factors affect your strategic factors and your leadership, which in turn affect your operating factors and your management practices. Then the fourth layer of Berkeley-Litwin is individual factors. And what this says is that things like your management practices, your structures, and your systems affect individuals in an organization. And the factors that are classed as individual factors include your work unit climate, so your, I guess, microculture. They include your individual skills and tasks. They include individual motivation. They include individual needs and values. So those are the individual factors that are affected by the operating factors, that are affected by the strategic factors, that are affected by the external factors. Um, and then the last part of Berk-Litwin then is outputs. And what the model says is that each of these layers of factors affects the next factor down, which ultimately leads to the output. So fundamentally, that's, that's all the Berkeley litwin says. It says there are a series of internal factors, external factors that operate at different levels and affect the way that an organization performs. Um, one of the things I like about it is that, you know, it, it does focus on the individual. And by having these individual factors, it does, I guess, evidence for fact that organizations are just the um, amalgam of the individuals that work within them. So I think it's kind of useful uh, in, in lots of ways. It's a bit complicated. Um, it provides a lot of factors, but it provides a useful framework for people to think about. I don't know, Jen. have you seen that one before? Have you got any thoughts on that so
1: one? I hadn't seen it before. We um, started looking at this and I've seen a few, a few different frameworks in my time. And I I'm, I think I maybe disagree with everyone else. I really like this one. Yeah. So for me, um, I mean, you know, like all things, it's how you deliver it, how you interpret it. But for me, it's a really neat way of understanding all the different things to contribute that that can contribute yeah. and yeah. allowing... So one of the things I always think about, uh, about uh, change is you're basically get quite often working with a bunch of people who don't really have any, um, certainly in my industry, don't really have any particular business experience because they're experts in what they do and that's the reason they're heads of department. And um, finding ways that really clearly explain to them why each thing matters and how it will impact and how they build on each other I think is really good. And so for me, that layering concept um, of digging through different types of factors is really helpful.
0: yeah I, I agree I um just for people who had accidentally muted myself um, so so I like the layering piece for me i think I like the fact that it presents as a systematic view, so you know organizations are systems. I like those as well um, i I think the hierarchical stuff is useful, but I think I'm less of a fan of a hierarchical piece than you. I think okay. um, I think there's a little bit more interconnectedness that, that takes place within organizations, um, or maybe I just think that there should be um. But, but no, it's... And I,
1: no, actually, to be fair, I think you're absolutely right. I guess what I, why, why I like it in that way is, is that it gives a very straightforward way of thinking in an order that you can think about it. Yes. And for someone who struggles to visualize how organizations really work and actually mostly behaves in a silo, which is quite common um, for a number of technical departments that we work with, with some of the organizations I've worked with. It's a really quick, it's a, it, it, I just feel like I would be able to explain that really easily, and they'd go, I get that. That makes yeah. sense to me. Whereas some of the others I feel are either woolly or um, maybe don't ring as true for outlining all the things that actually impact uh, the way of thinking about organizational change.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's useful, right? It's, it's a really useful way to express this stuff to um, leaders so, and organizations.
1: Am I right? Did you say it's not massively in favor, this one?
0: Well, I don't think it's terribly popular, um, okay. but I don't really have too much of a view on its prevalence of use. I know it's a less commonly used than, okay. for example, the Mackenzie one we'll touch on. Mm.
1: Mm. Let's, let's, why don't you talk us through that?
0: Why don't I talk us through McKenzie? All right, so the Mackenzie model is something that people may be more familiar with. This is the mckenzie 7S model of change. And it's trying to do much of a similar, much a similar type of thing as the Burke-Litwin model. So the mckenzie 7S model of change holds mm. out seven factors that it thinks are interconnected within the broader system of work. Um, It's got three harder things and then four softer, more peopley things. Um, And in this model, each of the factors affects every other factor. So it's fully interconnected and integrated as a model. In terms of the harder things it calls out, it calls out systems. So this is um, a mixture of sort of platforms and systems, but also policies and procedures can fit within systems of working in here. Um, it calls out structure, so things like your organizational structure, and it calls out your strategy. So these are sort of a, the sort of conceptual things that are, um, you know, the the more sort of technical things that are in here. And then it calls out four softer things. So it calls out skills, which I'd say you know skills and capabilities um, within the organization. It calls out staff, so these are the people in your organization. It calls out style, which is the way that you you do things. And then it calls out your shared values, which really um, falls partly into the the culture space that we talked about earlier. And what it says is that every time you affect one of these things, you affect every other one of those things and that they're all actually interconnected. Um, And one of the big takeaways for me from this is that anytime that you're looking to change anything in your organization, you need to remember that everything that you change affects everything else that exists within your organization. And you really need to think about organizations as a systemic whole. So is this one you've seen before, Jen?
1: Yes. So um, I'm not, yeah. Oh. um, So for (laughs) listeners, the reason that I've got a slightly funny look on my face is um, I get quite frustrated by things like this because for me, I don't understand how that's useful, except as a seven-point checklist of things you should think about every time you do anything in an organizational change process. Um, I think it's too high level to be meaningful. I'm not sure I agree with the way that they have segmented stuff. And when I think about the concept that everything works with everything else, it makes a pretty picture, but how do I then as, as a manager or a leader or a team, break down where to start and what to think about and how to do it in the best way possible? I mean, the idea that everything affects everything is is not an unreasonable one the yeah. idea that those are seven things that contribute to the model is not unreasonable. Are they the only seven things? not sure. Are they seven things of equal weight? not sure? Um, and do they get to the heart of I mean so for example, skills um, are they talking about the skills of the leaders? are they talking about the skills in the organization? Are they probably talking about all of those things, but actually, how does it effectively help you implement that thinking into a change process? I'm not sure. Yeah. Except as a checklist, like I say. But, you yes, know, i can
0: write the, a checklist. It's high level. Um, I guess one of the things that I do like about it is it's simple. Um, I think I agree that it's not, you know, detailed enough to be hugely useful. But it's yeah. just kind of simple and it's memorable. Um, and I think it gets across the point that things are a system. And I like that. You know, the interconnected nature of work is something that I really believe in. And I think all too often people delivering change programs get excited about the bit that they're doing and really fail to think about the impact on others. And I think the key message from this is you need to think about the other stuff. If you're delivering a new IT platform, you need to think about the people using it, you need to think about you know, what does that mean in terms of the uh, organizational structure that you have? What does it mean in terms of skills? You know, what are the people that you need to have in place? And just trying to get people to think more broadly is helpful. Um, so
1: Okay, and I do totally agree with that. I'm just not sure I get that from the model. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it if you describe it to me, I can then look at the model and go, oh, that's represented in there.
0: Yeah. But if
1: I get the model on its own without someone translating it, yeah. I don't know yeah. that I get that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And certainly yeah. Burke Litwin's clearer um in terms of the directionality of things then. And I
1: don't think he's got everything on there by any stretch of the imagination.
0: No, yeah. I don't but I don't think either of them do to be honest. I think No. You but, know, my you take know. on Burke Litwin is it's is it's maybe not quite simple enough to be Just a really high level guide, and it's not quite detailed enough to answer everything um, so I think they've both got things to work on, but I think the, the core points behind them both are interesting
1: yeah, and I, I guess it's like everything it's how are you going to use them If you have a clear idea of where you want to get to and how you want to get there and you're looking for evidence to be able to explain it to other people easily, then yes, both of them to some extent work. If yeah. you are looking for ideas about what you should think about, yes, both of them work yeah. Neither of them, and actually, I'm not sure you find that. I don't think there is a model for, for most things in management that you could say wholeheartedly. You put that in the hands of a sensible but naive practitioner, and they would be able to get it done. I just don't think that exists.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and this goes back to one of our very early points that we talked about when we spoke about organizational development, which is that really organizations are complicated and fairly unique, and they've all got their own specific thing. So it's hard to find a one size fits all thing. Um, yeah. So these are helpful guides, but maybe not more. All right, so, so what we've done then is we've talked a little bit we, about some of our definitions. We've talked a little bit about some of the frameworks um, that people use to think about the factors of organizational change. What we're going to do now is spend a couple of minutes talking about some models of organizational change. Um, and when we talk about models, what we're talking about is things that people have proposed as a series of processes that you can go through to help effectively deliver organizational change and get good outcomes. And we're going to touch on three models. We're going to talk, on, uh, talk about Kurt Lewin's three-stage model of change, um, which is from the 1940s. We're going to talk about John Cotter's eight-stage model of change, which I think is the 90s. Um, then we're going to talk about um, Procy's ADCAR five-stage model of change, which is from um, early 2000s. And what I'll do is I'll share a little bit or, about each of the models and the stages in them and what they're trying to achieve. Then having thought about them, I wanted to reflect on the similarities between the models because I think that's potentially quite helpful in terms of thinking about organizational change in itself. So if we start with um, Kurt Lewin's model of change, as I said, this is in the 40s and it's it's really a very, very basic model. And in some ways it's, you know, it's kind of a bit untrendy at the minute, but we'll come on to that a bit later on. So Kurt Lewin's model's only got three stages. Um, his first stage he calls unfreeze, and what he's talking about here in terms of introducing an organizational change is you need to work in your organization and you need to get people to be willing and able to let go of the way that they're doing things at the minute. So you need to break up some of the, the frozenness of ways of working, ways of behaving, knowledge and all that kind of stuff. You need to loosen everything up and get it ready to change. That's stage one. Stage two is once you've loosened everything up, then you need to change it. You need to introduce new ways of doing things, new practices new behaviours, new structures, all those kinds of things. You need to introduce the change that is um, aligned to your strategic goals, the change that you want to deliver. That's stage two. Then stage three for Kurt Lewin is a stage called freeze. And what he says is that you know, you've know you loosened people up, you've introduced some changes. Now that you've introduced some changes, you need to freeze. And you need to make things static again so that people are um, embedding their new values and using them consistently. Of their new processes, or their new ways of working, their new knowledge, um, so that they're using them consistently um, and that they can sustain them through repeated use in a fairly frozen way of working. So that's Kurt Lewin. Um, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's an oldie from the 40s. I think it's, it's a goodie, but there's some dispute about parts of it, and we'll touch on that a little bit in a couple minutes. Um, the next one I want to touch on is John Cotter's um, Eight Stages. Now, John Cotter's model is maybe one of the most famous ones that's in existence. Certainly a lot of people know it. It's from a book um, in 96 called Leading Change. And it's commonly, commonly used by, you know, consultancies in different forms. Um, there's even a book that I quite like called, what's it called? Uh, My Iceberg is Melting or something like this. It's a sort of penguin-based parable of this model that's quite, quite good. Anyway, so what are the steps that Cotter talks about? He, he has eight stages to his model. The first one is urgency and what he says here is the first stage to help you deliver any large organizational change is to create a sense of urgency Um, you need to identify you know a burning platform a, a driver a need that makes people want to get behind that change so stage one is creating urgency stage two is creating a guiding coalition so here he's saying you need to pull together A mix of people with the right skills and capabilities and levels of influence and um, you know sort of social recognition within your organization and ideas and bring those people together almost into a sort of steering group so that you can steer but you can also connect with the people that you have. Then stage three is vision and here what you need to do is you need to create clarity in relation to what your future goal is. So you really need to create a clear vibrant motivating inspiring vision of a future and what you want the outcome to be after your change so that's stage three um, and then stage four is a stage called uh, creating a volunteer army and what Carter says is that really big organization organizational changes only really happen when people um, contribute towards them and want to work together to create this large change In the same way that if you think about, you know, sort of social change at a societal level, grassroots uh, movements are a really powerful way to achieve that. That's the same idea behind the volunteer army. So in an organization, how can you create a movement? How can you meaningfully create opportunities for a large number of people within your organization to start to volunteer and support and deliver the change? Um, Stage five is then to, from a leadership perspective, start to remove some of the barriers to change. So friction is an enemy to change. If things are difficult to do, then people are going to do them less often. So the role of leadership at this stage is to start to remove bureaucracy, remove impediments to change, you know, take the grist um, out of uh, out of the system so that things flow a little bit more smoothly. So that's removing barriers. Um, then as you're starting to get these changes in place, the next stage is to ensure that there are short-term wins. So as people start to change, you want to make sure that they feel the benefit of the things that they're doing so you get a positive feedback cycle through short-term wins and and you start that positive feedback cycle with smaller wins you know so little steps at, at the beginning are rewarded and the, the you know the little steps are recognized and they're recognized quickly and they're short term and that's stage six and then you move on to stage seven which is accelerate and the idea here is that you've started to celebrate your short-term wins you've made a few of those and now that you're doing that you want to drive that momentum you want the steps to get bigger you want the ambition to get bigger you want the sense of progress and excitement that people have through successful delivery of shorter things to be increased and translated and transposed into delivering larger more ambitious and more complicated aspects of your change so you build on that momentum and accelerate your change and through that stage you you get towards the end of your your um, your change that you've delivered and then the last stage in the Kotter model is uh, something called culture change, and what happens here then is you really need to embed your new ways of working. So throughout your change, you've introduced new things, you've got new behaviours, you've got new ways of working, and what you need to do in culture change is you need to make sure that those ways of working and the things that you've introduced become embedded into the way that your organisation works. Right. So what you do here is you start to show the links between the success that people have experienced and the behaviours that they've used to get there. And by demonstrating that successes are the result of these new ways of working, you can start to drive towards more sustainable change. And that's really what you're trying to do here, is you're trying to sustain what you've changed and really embed it into your ways of working. Um, So that makes it a lasting, um, sort of perpetual uh, modification of your ways of working. So just to run through those again quickly, we've got eight stages. Urgency, create a sense of urgency. Coalition, create a guiding coalition. Vision, create an inspiring, vibrant vision for the future. Volunteer army, pull together a volunteer army. Remove the barriers, take the friction and bureaucracy out of your system. Promote short-term wins. Accelerate the wins so that you get bigger and more ambitious change. And then change your culture and embed those new ways of working so that they're um, perpetuated within your organization. So in a nutshell, that's the Cotter, it's the change model um so what do you think i think that's one you've seen before
1: yeah um i'm not sure what i think in the sense that um there's there's one big question for me that i don't think gets answered by any of these models um but i certainly understand why it would be incredibly popular i think it's the only model i've seen in this kind of area that is really clear and directional about things that you can do as a leadership team to implement the process and i think everything from the way they talk about people and the use of people and the way they talk about things like short-term wins allows someone who is not versed in business jargon to understand what that might look like instantly in their organization. I don't think I've ever seen, I I, I still don't think there's models that I've seen that I get as quickly in other areas of business management that I am so comfortable with as as being able, I, I feel like I could stand in front of anyone whether it was my 83-year-old dad or my 14-year-old nephew, and they would understand John Cotter within a couple of sentences on each one.
0: It's quite human like that, isn't it? I mean, it's not obfuscated by management speak. It's just quite a human level.
1: It is human, but it's also real. Like, yeah. instantly, you say volunteers in this concept, and yeah. in my head, I think of every organization I've ever worked with and go, oh, I know who those would be. Yeah, I know yeah. who those guys are straight yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know this concept of coalition it relates to so many other areas, so if you think about equality, for example, which I know is another podcast we're going to talk about
0: yeah
1: um we talk about finding allies, yeah, a lot in the equality and diversity sector, finding allies, finding champions, and that coalition concept is exactly the same um It's how do you become bigger than just you in order to be able to lead yeah you know and to activate what you want to happen
0: yeah. Yeah so I think we're on the same page I mean it feels like a pretty good model to me um
1: yeah but, certainly but, as models go yeah I get it and I think it's um I think it's solid
0: yeah it's um, a good one to have how add a model.
1: how much that is the right way to do it that's a different matter yeah so I'm 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 not sold on the idea that any of any of the models that we either talk about or the other ones I've seen actually gets the heart of effective change
0: yeah And, and, you know, when we spoke at the beginning and we discounted things like individual psychological change and we discounted um, behavior change and we discounted culture change as sort of theories and models. um, I think that, you know, I think the relationship between the individuals in an organization and the organization overall is a really powerful one. And I think I think you need to go back and think about the impacts on the individuals and some of those things. But I think
1: I do. But there's also there's a glaring hole for me, which is that in real life, what happens is you start changing stuff and realize that some stuff's not going to work or that some yeah. stuff is going to have unintended impacts or that yeah. Yeah. some stuff, or that the situation changes. So you're in the middle of doing something and government changed the rules. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and the concern I have is that none of the models really say and at every stage, you may well need to change your plans. And I think that's, that's true of a huge amount of business methodology that's around. It yes. assumes that these things exist in a uh, vacuum.
0: Yeah. The ceteris paribus or whatever. Um, and I think at some point we'll talk about, you know, VUCA as a concept. And I think that's what we're talking about here. You know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity is the the phrase of VUCA. And I think you're right that when you work in environments that are that fast changing and uncertain, it gets harder to to feel that you could adhere to any of these models. Um,
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that always makes me nervous about any model is that I've sat in meetings and people see models as a process that will guarantee them the win, even if you get halfway through it and realize it's a dead duck. And people, you know, and that plays into all sorts of issues of people have attached their names to it and, and, you know, all of those things. But you sit there and you're like, someone, somewhere in this process there needs to be, in the same way there is in project management processes like Prince2, somewhere there needs to be the moments that get studied throughout the model of, and now we stop and check in that we are actually doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kind of like your change gates. And, And I like the idea that I think you were kind of alluding to there about people having their names associated with it, of something like, you know, sunk costs of change. You know, there's got to be a point where you realise, well, we've invested this, that sunk cost, and we just need to reevaluate where we are. I seem to
1: have spent more time this week talking about sunk cost fallacy than anything else.
0: Have you? Okay.
1: So, and I think in change, it's particularly important because I think, um, and I think, you know, if you look at the big government IT NHS project.
0: Yeah.
1: From, what, a decade ago? Yeah. um, That never got finished. Yeah. I you know, I think probably pretty early on, pragmatic research would have told them it's probably not going to be feasible, yeah, but there was too much commitment, money contracting involved in my yeah. view,
0: yeah,
1: and so they pressed on, and you just sit there thinking, oh, yeah. I'm not sure and and also technology was changing so fast, yeah, so that everything they were doing was utterly out of date, and I think that's a classic example of, oh, we're building a new website, and by the time it's finished, it's out of date,
0: yeah. Anyway. Yeah, certainly, you know, some of the organizations that I worked in suffered um, from that as well, you know, trying to do really large scale IT product, uh, projects led to the timing out of the technology and strategically the decision was made to effectively abandon large scale IT projects and instead go to, you know, um, software as a service type models and, and become a, you know, an outsourcer of our software technology and instead deliver shorter bite sized projects that we could manage and incremental change
1: yeah and I think it's it, the problem is one of the challenges I think around all of these models is um and particularly around this whole idea of vision and i I, I do like Cotter's model, but the danger is if someone can paint you a picture of the future, it doesn't prove anything about the ability to get there
0: yeah
1: and yeah. um and I think there is an element of uh Realism that is missing for or maybe not now, but for a long time there's an element of realism missing about what level of change you can create in a late large organization and in what time space
0: yeah, the times is a really important one isn't it um all right well let's let's chat through one more model and then do a bit of reflecting on them. so the next model I wanted to chat through is um, the ad car change model, which is from an organization called ProC, which um, I think is professional science mm-hmm. um, condensed down into pro Now. They have uh, a model of change, which, as I said, is ADCAR A-D-K-A-R, and that's a five-stage change model. The first stage, A, is about awareness, and what they're saying here is that before the people in your organization can even really consider change, they need to be aware of the need for change and the case for change. Um, and by creating this awareness, or sorry, to create this awareness, you might want to do communications, you might need to do education, you might push for peer advocacy, all those types of things, but it's about creating awareness. Then the stage after awareness is D, which is desire. So once they're aware of the change and the the case for change, you you want people to be desirous of the change. So they should um, get to the stage where they want to see the change through. So that's stage two, desire. Stage three is knowledge. And what this is saying is that, you know, once people are aware of the change and they want to make the change, they need to develop the knowledge um, and the skills that will let them implement the change. Right. So they need to know how to change. And then once they know how to change, what you need them to do is you need them to change. And stage four is then ability. So they start to change and they develop the ability to do things in the new way. So they learn the new skills. They learn the new ways of working. They learn the new capabilities. They learn the new processes, they learn their new um, reporting lines, whatever those things are, they get the ability to work in the new way. And that's sort of completion of the change. And then stage five for ADCAR is reinforcement, that's the R. Um, And what this is saying is that once you've got to the stage where people have their new sets of abilities, what you need to do is you need to really embed those changes, ensure they're sustainable and reinforce them so that people keep working in the new way. So that's quite a simple model. Um, I'll run through it again. It's A for awareness, D for desire, K for knowledge, A for ability, and R for reinforcement. So that's, um, that's a model that's out there that, that some people use. I think it's proprietary in some ways. I think I'm um, owned that one. Um, but I think other people use similar models as well. Is that one you've seen before, Jane, or is that new to you?
1: I've seen something similar. I've not seen theirs, but I've seen something very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've heard it referred to, but I've never delved into any detail. Yeah. Was um, it one you'd come across before you researched this?
0: No, I hadn't. I, I you know, I'd seen um, Cotter and Kurt Lewin before, but I hadn't seen this one. Um, I'd had, I'd not looked at it. I've had people mention it to me in the past, but I've not used it in a, in a sort of professional sense. I just thought it was one that was worth raising because I'd seen, I'd heard mention of it um, at some workshops and conferences i have been to. Um, yeah, what do you think of it? I, I think it's fine. You know, I don't think it adds a huge amount. To be honest, I mean, it seems kind of obvious. Um, But that's my view of a lot of things. I I prefer the simplicity of Lewin and I prefer the detail of Cotter, if I'm going to be honest. Um, So this kind of sits in the middle for me.
1: I think it, yeah. So there's quite often I come across models that I think that's loose enough that you can make it what you want. Yeah. Um, And therefore, is it really a useful model because all it's doing is justifying an idea of how you're going to do something already. Yeah. Um, It's the the one that, and and the one I'm thinking of is, i can't even remember where i saw it but it was very similar but maybe called different things and i just remember looking at it and thinking oh that's that's for someone to look to and justify how they're going to do it
0: yeah but, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Does
1: that make does that make sense and that always well,
0: we makes if it that something
1: feels i do think there's a really interesting thing about the number of steps that people feel confident in and the level of detail that people want from a yeah. model to yeah. be able to trust in it as well i definitely think
0: yeah So so those are the three models. So we talked about Kurt Lewin, we talked about John Cotter, and we talked about ADCAR. Um, When we were doing this, one of the things that we looked at was kind of a relationship between them all. And I don't know if you picked up on this as we were speaking through it, but where I ended up was that actually a lot of the models, though they've got different levels of detail and are doing slightly different things, I believe are all trying to fundamentally do the same thing, which is what you'd expect if they're trying to deliver organizational change. So as we thought about that, we stepped back and split them into um, or or tried to group them into what they're trying to do. Um, And we've got a view on how they're basically all trying to do the same thing. So thinking about it and thinking about what you're doing with organizational change, we thought that essentially you're trying to overcome a series of challenges. So what what are the difficulties in introducing a new change to um, to an organization? And then how do you overcome them? So we came up with three, I guess, challenges and three responses that we think all of these models are trying to do. So I was just gonna touch through those, touch on those quickly. Can I just Um, chip in, if
1: anyone's listening, I really encourage you to look at the resources that we load on the website because uh, James has done this really clever diagram, which I, I'll be honest, I hadn't spotted the theme. And then I look at the diagram, I'm like, oh my God, that's so obvious. And it really helps clarify my thinking around some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, good, well, thank you. And hopefully it's useful for people. Um, So essentially what, what I've said is that all these models are trying to tackle the same three challenges. And challenge number one, I think, is that if people aren't ready to change in your organization, then they won't change. So each model tries to get people ready to change, essentially. Then challenge number two says that if people can't practice the change and and put it into place, then they'll fail at adopting your new ways of working or embedding your change. Right. So they need space to implement and space to practice. Um, And then challenge number three is that if people can't see the benefits of their changes then they'll revert to doing things in their old old way so let's do this again so challenge number one people need to be ready to change or else they uh, won't change challenge number two people need to be able to practice and implement the change otherwise they won't learn the new ways of doing things and challenge number three people need to see the benefits of their change or they'll cease to be changed and revert back to the old ways of doing so in terms of the way that these models all um similarly try and overcome those challenges, response number one to that first challenge is that um, most models start by helping individuals prepare to embrace the change, right? So let's get them ready to change. Then challenge number two, which is around, you know, giving them the opportunity to practice and implement their changes. Most models uh, help people through the initial and difficult parts of a change and give them space to learn new things and develop those abilities. Then challenge number three around, you know, seeing the benefits of change um, to make sure that you stay changed. And most of the models focus on embedding the changes and trying to create uh, sustainability and reinforcement so that um, what was changed stays changed. So at a high level, that's what all those models are doing. So if we look at the models in turn really quickly, Kurt Lewin's model really fits this really quite easily. So in response to if people aren't ready to change, they won't change, Kurt Lewin talks about unfreezing. So here he's saying let's, let's you know, break up the ice within our structures and our systems and give people some of the space and opportunity to change. And that helps them get ready to change. Then in terms of helping them change and getting ready to change, um, Kurt Lewin's second stage just says change. And in terms of um, making sure that people can see the benefits of changing and, and developing that sustainability, here Kurt Lewin talks about freeze, right? So those three stages map through to those three challenges I think quite well. If we look at John Cotter's model from 96, if we think about the challenge of getting people ready to change, then he's got three things in there he's got creating a sense of urgency creating your guiding coalition to follow and creating a vision for the future and for me those three things are all about getting people ready to change you know you create your burning platform you create some leadership with some ideas and you create a place in the future and by doing that you get people ready to change you give them a sort of business case for change for themselves then the second challenge around giving people a space to practice the change and implement the change well here What we're doing is we're bringing together volunteers so everyone can get involved in the change. Um, We remove barriers, which makes it easier for people to do the changes and and make those changes. You help people with short-term wins, which gives them an opportunity to practice the changes and and get positive feedback for delivering the changes. And then you accelerate that process so people make even more changes, they practice more changes, they overcome those and they deliver those changes. And then the third challenge here is around making sure that people can see the benefits from a change so they don't revert. And in John Cotters model, we've got um, stage eight, which is changing culture, which is really about trying to loop back and demonstrate that the benefits people are seeing are as a result of the new ways that they're working. So this is around helping people see the benefits of the change and really embedding that. And then the last model, we've got the ad model. Again, I think it tackles those same three challenges. So challenge number one around people not being ready to change. Well, here, The ADCAR model talks about creating awareness, creating desire, and giving people the knowledge um, so that they're ready to change. So again, those three things all help people feel that they're ready to change. They know that there's a need for change, they want to do the change, and they've got the knowledge that will help them change. And through that, they are ready for change, and that's challenge one, Um, overcome. Challenge two then, Uh, we need to help people practice through the change and implement it. Well, here, ADCAR talks about the ability. And this is giving people the time to develop the new abilities that they need. So that correlates really well. And then challenge number three, if people can't see the benefits, they'll revert back to their old ways. Well, the ADCOR model talks about reinforcement. And here what it's saying is that, you know once you've embedded your new ways, you need people to have their new ways of working reinforced positively to ensure that they keep working and so that they continue to embed um, and sustain those new ways of working to get the benefits that they're bringing. So I guess that was just a little bit of a framework to think of that I thought was, for me, helpful in terms of thinking about models of organisation.
1: Yeah, and I think it probably goes some way to explaining why Kotter is so popular because actually, what what he's done is taken those three stages, but actually given meaningful meaningful tasks almost to each of those stages, so that it, well, although interestingly, none of them are particularly strong. I don't think on the final stage. Yeah. Um, but generally, I think um, what he does really well is is give he It ta- makes it task oriented, right? So he gives you some real building
0: blocks. Sorry, I said he gives you some real building blocks in relation to yeah.
1: So like you, you so my my concern with all of this, um, as I mentioned, is the fact that it's not particularly self reflective, and it's 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 written from, don't shoot me, a middle management point of view. Yeah. So it's myth. It's written to, in, to my mind, all of this stuff about you have been told what change is going to make and come hell or high water, you will get that change done.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and therefore here it's like a salesman coming to the door and going through a script and saying, this is how you're going to get there. Now yeah. I like Cotter's model because I think it, it's really prescriptive, but none of it says, and where do you question if you're right or they're right? The assumption is it's, it, it's almost dictatorial is the wrong word. Patriot. Maybe, maybe patriarchal is the wrong word, but it feels very parental. Um, it feels yes. like we are the big organization have decided what changes need to happen, and this is how we're going to sell it to you, convince you, show you, give the opportunity. Um,
0: yeah. So, so I think there's some really powerful stuff in there. You know, one of the things that I think is really powerful that I don't think is included in, in any of these is the, the sort of ideas around co-creation and mm-hmm. co-definition of a future. Um, and I don't think that's in here. I think you're right that this needs you to know what the answer is before you start to implement it. And there's some danger in that. I think if you really want to drive really excellent change within your organisation, then co-creation with the people in your organisation and your stakeholders is a, is a really powerful step for that.
1: I mean, so, forgive me, James, because I, I definitely don't know the history of, of change. and, and
0: mm.
1: Change management didn't exist like as a job. When I first started out in the workforce, yeah, to any extent. Um, whereas now it's very big. In the same way as project management didn't exist twenty five years ago, mm-hmm. and now it does. Um, but what I, I d- I've done a bit of project management, and I've, I've sat a couple of ridiculous, well, I don't know if exams or whatever they are. But yeah. um, what's interesting to me is that actually, I look back at my project management past, which is a long time ago,
0: yeah.
1: and it still feels more relevant in terms of the way systematically they manage projects yeah. applied to change than any of the change models that I've read about.
0: Yeah. And, and so, so project management and change management are trying to, are trying to do different things. So, they are,
1: but interestingly, I think some of the models in project management mm-hmm. could be helpful, more helpful in developing some of these change models. Because one of the things that I always think is quite interesting is that in project management, there's a lot more stop and check and reflect
0: yes that's
1: um, and therefore it is innately saying are we sure we're still doing the right project is the project yeah. still being delivered in the right way yeah and that's what i feel like not just these three models that you've outlined but generally in change models it, it, it feels much more like it's about we are absolutely confident this is the right thing and yeah. we're not going to take any new evidence and adjust and adapt
0: yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and the only times you do see adapt it's when they're talking about adapting to convince your staff or your, your employees or whoever you're dealing with, your stakeholders, um, about giving them some room to manoeuvre so they feel like they've had input. Yeah, And
0: yeah. That, is,
1: that again slips back to that whole parental patriarchal kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that, that's a bit poisonous, right? Behaving like that. I mean, I think if you, if you listen to people, you need to genuinely listen to people. Otherwise, you undermine all the good things that you've done.
1: Also, in big organizations, quite often, they don't know the right answers at the top. They know where they need to get to. Yeah. But the idea that the change wholesale is going to be correct is nonsense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. so, so increasingly, things like co-creation, I think, are, are powerful ways to do that. Um, and certainly within some of the larger organizations that, that I've worked in or, or spoken to people in, co-creation is becoming more common. So, for example, if you're going to create a new set of values for your organization, then what you might do is you might take that out to 50,000 people in your organisation and get their views. And generally, the way that works is you condense down your values into maybe you know 50 phrases or statements and then share those across your population. Yeah. And, and, you- I,
1: and the thing is, right, I, get, I do get that it's coming in and I see that it's coming in and things like values. But yeah. I'll be honest, the places that I still see it massively weak are when... The people who are actually operating processes are not properly engaged in the approach to creating and delivering the change and implementing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and my frustration with that consistently is that I hear back, while well, they were consulted. And the problem is that they're consulted by a group of people who do not understand how to talk to them in their process terms. Yeah. So yeah. quite often, it, you see it quite a lot with them, um, and I'll get them the wrong way around mm-hmm. digitization versus digitalization, and I don't know which way around I get them. But one is effectively where you take the existing process and just digitalize. So literally every stage is exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. The other is where you understand that you could change the process. Yeah. And so we see consistently um, in finance departments, in competition management administration departments, uh, digitization of processes. Yeah. Um, where they've effectively taken the exact process. And because the people in there have been doing it for 20 years, they haven't been explained what the opportunity is to improve things and to solve yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then someone pushes the change through. Even then, though, someone splits spots it halfway through. Anyway. So. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a whole piece around you know delivering change projects, or delivering project managed projects. I think, which is a subset of this type of work. But I, I agree fundamentally with the, the need to engage people on the ground because everyone to know. Um, what yeah, the- and
1: I just think I I you know I think back to people like. Was it Tim's? Were we talking about this? We've uh, touched
0: the on Tim's at point? one point. Yeah, we've touched on Yeah,
1: Johnson. and his ability to spend time on the ground all the time. Not because it's a good thing to do and it looks nice, but because genuinely he thinks he's got a better chance of running the business.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I don't, in big organizations, I don't see that cop that often. And I'm, I'm not talking about CEOs. I'm not interested in them. But the people who actually control decision at very senior management, sitting down with administrators and call center staff to understand really what the customer experience and what the user experience of staff is like.
0: Yeah, and that's a powerful thing. Absolutely.
1: Hugely. Anyway.
0: All right. So, so those are our change models and some thoughts and reflection on uh, change models. Um, so in terms of what we're going to do next, I think what we're going to do is give you a quick list, <coughs> a quick list of the week. Um, so having you know thought about change models and reflected them on them a little bit, The list that we wanted to run through this week, it's it's short. It's only four things in the list. Oh, sorry. I think we added another one. I think it's five things in the list now. Um, And these are all things that we think that it's really worth thinking about at the start of your change program. So if you're at those early stages and you're getting ready to go, what are some things you want to make sure that you've thought about and have answers to before you press a button and start changing? Um, So do you want to run through this, Jane? Or do you want me to run through one?
1: Yeah, no, sure. Uh, So, and I I think you've just... uh, I just want to pick up on one thing quickly. You yes. said it's not just things. These are not questions just to ask yourself. These are questions you should have the answer to. And if you don't, you're not ready to start. That would yeah. be my, yeah. my argument. Um, so the ones that we've got are, do you know where you're trying to get to? Can you paint? So can you paint a picture of what it looks like when you're done? And, you know, and how you know it's going to you're successful and you stop, you know, quite often things drift on because no one's clear where the end point is. Yeah. Do your leaders have the skills to get you there? um and, and you know, I've realized that quite often the people that are having that conversation are the people that you're asking the question about. Yes. <laughs> um, which makes things challenging, yeah. uh, hugely challenging. Um, yeah. But you know, somewhere along the way, there needs to be candid conversations.
0: But as, and, and for me, one of the, the powerful things here is around do your leaders have the people skills to get you there? So we talk about organizational change, we talked about the simpler bits of organizational change, which are you know, the, the technical things, your structures, your strategies, and so on. And But the difficult thing of organizational change is the people side of it, right? So do your leaders have the ability to get your people there, right? You know, do they have uh, communication skills? Do they have the leadership skills? Do they have the influencing and inspiring skills? You know, can they do those things? Right? That's a really important question.
1: I think it is. And I also, I would say, not only do they have your, your leaders have the skills to get you there, do your leaders have the skills to operate in that world when you get there? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I've I've seen a number of change programs that have involved either a changing to the functionality of a major product piece of an organization or a major organizational structural change. So someone going from managing one division to multiple divisions, for example, and uh, without question, I think um, the question that doesn't always get asked, yeah, they can get you there. But what yeah. happens when you get there and are they ready? And have you prepped them? And if they're not ready, going to be ready, that's fine. But then figure out how to get them ready.
0: Exactly. One of your uh, early, early initiatives in this type of change. Because might...
1: otherwise the people that get moved through that change, what's going to happen is very quickly, it's not going to be a, a, a successful initial period and they will lose faith in it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's okay uh, to have one person get you there and another person to lead you when you are there. But you want to think about that in advance. You do get change yeah. specialists, and it's
1: all right for someone not to have the skills at the beginning of the process, but really? you do need to think about what it's going to be like and how they're going to get supported.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I think that's a really big one for me, and I think it really it, the candor that needs to happen between the project working the team working on that project, or the person leading it, yeah, that project of change, uh, but and the people that actually maybe part of that and how you do that. I think that's a challenge. Um, the third one is. Um, have you thought about the impact on all factors or all areas of your organization, all types of so factors? If you think about what you talked about earlier in that mo- model, that's a really good way of thinking about, you know, every time something happens or something changes, do you think about it? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I think they don't, is the short answer and quite often plans get jigged or um, approaches get changed, but they don't go back and revisit and check whether yeah, it's impact um and then uh number four have you got a plan to take your people with you which sounds super obvious like i would to me that would be the first question yeah. i'm not sure people always think about it they're so busy particularly i think when you're talking about process change um significant process change or merging of companies for example things like that um and i would encourage people to listen to the previous uh one of the podcasts in the first series around the change curve on that one yeah. because it really helps your thinking and then the fifth one um is uh
0: contingency uh, planning okay. which one contingency planning have we got Oh
1: uh, so yeah so the fifth one absolutely is about have you assumed something's going to go wrong and worked out what you're going to do when it does now the way i would talk about it is so when you work and i think there's really good lessons you can borrow from places so event management's a great place to borrow contingency planning from so when you think about things like Glastonbury or the Olympics or any of the big events, um, they talk about uh, delivering a major event, right? And the assumption is there is a plan to deliver it and they, they assume at every stage something will go wrong, right? And so they instead of developing a contingency for a specific situation, they have a contingency approach and that will involve a series of check-ins or it will involve a... Automatic response every time something deviates from the plan or every time something doesn't work, a process is kicked off effectively. And it might be quite a small process, it might involve one person, but it's a process of someone who stops and looks around and goes, Hang on, what does that mean for the next stage of the plan? What does that mean at the end of change? Is that going to change where we want to get to? Um, so, for me, um, contingency planning is huge because I have yet to see a change a program of change go the way it was meant to in total. I just don't think it happens.
0: It, does, it doesn't happen. I, I, I mean, if you look at human, right? Yeah. Yeah. cost benefits, everything that's done, it, it's always changing.
1: Um, okay. So just a reminder, um, the list of five, do you know where you're trying to get to? Do your leaders have the skills to get you there? Have you thought about the impact on all facts of your organization? Have you got a plan to take your people with you and have you contingency planned?
0: Cool. All that's right.
1: That's our list of the week.
0: There we go. Uh, five things for you there. Um, I think we're heading towards the end. I think we'll do really quick stories from a keyboard, a final thought, and then uh, check out. So quick story from a keyboard for me um, is around organizational change. And, and for me, this is a story about taking people with you. And I worked in an organization that uh, you know, developed a, a new strategy in their business unit and were looking at radically simplifying and improving their ways of working. Um, And inevitably, when you simplify things, there's an impact potentially on headcount and full-time equivalents and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's tough. Um, Some organizations just ignore that. Uh, But what I saw in this organization that I liked was a fairly open contract and conversation between the leadership and the people in the organization. And that contract and conversation basically said, we're doing this. We think it'll make the organization better. We know it'll reduce our need for time. And what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a bit of a contract for you that's a one-third, one-third, one-third contract. Um, For every hour that we save, what we want to do is we want to give 20 minutes back to you in terms of reduced excess working. So reduced every time, all that kind of stuff. We're going to take one-third of it and use it to introduce new and more interesting work and help add more value to our customers. And we're going to take one-third of it and we're going to claim that as savings in terms of FTE. So cost savings through people reduction. And I think by facing into that conversation early on, there was um, a building of trust and there was a a painting of a vision of the future. Um, And there was fairly honest engagement with the people. And that program went on then to communicate effectively from that point onwards. So things like posters up showing progress against deliverables around, you know, for the value streams within that business, how much time was saved in each one, how far were they along in their um, process simplification process and stuff like that. So for me, that was just a good example of taking your people with you through an organisational change or an aspect of a, an organisational change initiative. And that's my story.
1: I really like that one. Yeah, I really like that one. So I've got a really quick one and it's kind of a less positive one. Okay. Uh, or in my view, it's a less positive one. I, um, I was in an organisation which had very ambitious uh, programme of change um, and it was, surprise, surprise, new leadership, Um, wanted to restructure, change the way they did things. And it was all very positive at the beginning, lots of engagement, lots of co-creation actually that you mentioned earlier. Um, And then there came a point where clearly either they pre-planned and I I wasn't privy to this particular part of it, either they pre-planned or they just ran out of patience. But effectively uh, the organisation got called together and um, the CEO delivered a very robust let's say speech uh, which basically said either you're on the bus or you're not and if you're not you need to make other plans um and it was in response to lots of silo conversations lots of side sort of discomfort about the way certain people were being treated or that it hadn't been quite what they expected for certain things even though in general the program was going really well this was not a program going badly it was a little bit of a few people lagging behind, right? So I I had a look at this and this is actually a thing. People encourage this and they actively promote that, you know, the phrase that you gave me, because I was trying to figure out a way to keep it clean, was buy in or buzz off. There is another phrase that people can Google if they want to or whatever. But this idea that there comes a, uh, there is no deadline, sorry, it really annoys me. There is no deadline on people's timings. People change differently. And you're not good enough as a leader if you're not getting them there in the, your time frame, that's your problem, not theirs. People are not fundamentally bad people. And if they're bad people and they're in your organization, they should have been through a disciplinary process ages ago, right? Yeah. So it's not a cheap, organizational change is not a cheap way to get rid of some people if they don't buy into your vision because yeah. there must be a reason, right? So yeah. that's my story. I sat in that room and I was really pro that change program. I yeah. was the most pro in it and it made me furious. So don't do that, people, because you lose the people that you actually want.
0: Yeah. And, and your point, you, you know, your point that people go through a change curve at different places is important. And that point around getting people's buy-in is the first sort of challenge that all those models try and overcome. And if it's not worked, then a lot of the time, the reason communication doesn't land is because it's not been delivered well, right? Or well for that person. Right.
1: And I'm, look, don't get me wrong. I understand that that is a challenge and I understand that organizations have a time limit on how they can get things done, but understand that when you say that every other person in the room that is on board probably doesn't like you very much right then. And that, and they're not seeing you as a big, tough leader. They're not going, Oh, wow, look at him. They're going, mate, that's not the way to deal with it. If it's only two people with a problem, go deal with those two people. Don't play the big I am. So that was my
0: experience. Good. That was a passionate one. It was good to hear that. Sorry. Um, any final thoughts before we start to wrap up uh
1: so top final thoughts top tips yeah uh my really quick one um when you're going through a process of change for an organization create little avatars or little personas for the types okay. of different people that are responding so people who are a bit more resistant people who are really enthusiastic people who have people who are managers people who aren't and every time you put out a piece of comms think how is this going to land with each of those people because sure. one of the biggest things that derails change is when you put out a piece of comm communication and you think and you intend it to go down one way and there is one particular group of people who take it a completely different way they have a whole conversation about you know what it means that it doesn't mean and then suddenly half the organization is talking about something that is just irrelevant so that's my top tip
0: and and those personas are useful for working out your channel approach for your comms as well so for oh certain- I think
1: listen we've, we when we started using them for our change they worked for so many reasons yeah. comms how we got people together how we started segmenting the data about how people felt about stuff yeah um changing culture all of that but but for comms specifically yeah it it's just a, it's astonishing how people could take a piece of information and misunderstand it
0: yeah yeah that's good that's good all right well I've just got one sort of reflection top tip and it's probably similar to other things I've said so you know when we speak about organizational change there are the easy bits and the hard bits and the hard bits are are people Um, and people are the thing that will make or break your change program you know you need to get them along um, for the ride if you're going to be successful so if one thing stands out in all of this it's think about your people at the start of your change program and get that right and you'll have a good chance of success so that's my final thought or top tip Um, and I think that's us at the end of another episode Um, we're we're blasting through them now. So
1: I know, can't believe it.
0: That's gone.
1: Fast. So I guess it's just time to wrap up today. Yeah. So just a reminder that you can get in touch with us at the website or you can tweet us
0: at the Wild WoW Podcast.
1: So until then, and I do encourage you to go to the website because the notes on this session are particularly helpful in uh, getting a visual uh, when you're listening. Um, but until then, we will see you next time. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye now.
0: Bye. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us, if you wish, through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.